Good morning, church. I'm Sue Kiss, um, and I'll be doing the Bible reading today from Luke, chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. And it's Jesus and John the Baptist. John, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptised by John. But the Pharisees, the experts in the law, rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptised by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We are in Luke chapter 7, and we're going to pick it up from verse 18. And as we do that, we're going to come across, I think, a really heavy question, a question about whether or not it's worth chucking in your faith. Um, or whether it's okay to kind of wonder and doubt and wobble, um, because that's what we see happening. Or at least this is a passage that's meant to actually give you a firm foundation on which to ground your expectations of Jesus when they don't meet up with the reality. Um, and I wonder if you felt like that, that Jesus hasn't met all of your expectations. And maybe you're asking the question, is Jesus really worth giving your life to? Is he worth trusting? Now, of course, in Luke chapter 7, just in the bit that we haven't read, the first part that we looked at in previous weeks, incredible things have happened. And you would, you would trust in someone who could do those kind of things. Uh, you remember at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus has been met by a centurion. He's a Gentile who's got a sick servant. The servant is some distance away, but the centurion knows all about authority. And if Jesus has got authority, well, then he can heal. 
And so just to say, heal and he'll be healed. And that's in fact exactly what happens. And so you see this wonderful act of mercy poured out even on a Gentile. And then immediately afterwards, Jesus is confronted by uh, a widow on the way to the funeral of her dead son. This destitute lady is met by Jesus. And again, an incredible act of mercy. Jesus, just with a word, brings the child back to life again and reunites mother and son. And you think, what amazing things. And of course, trusting with someone, trusting in someone with that kind of power makes perfect sense. It also makes perfect sense that in verse 17 of that same chapter, chapter 7, you read this, that the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Of course it did. In fact, it spread so far that it gets all the way down to the Dead Sea area and to a prison. And in that prison is a prisoner who's very interested in what Jesus is doing because he's got a whole lot of expectations about what Jesus is about. It's John the Baptist. Uh, He's been locked up there for uh, a while. In fact, we haven't heard of John since chapter 3. But remember, when we heard about John, um, we heard of him being the forerunner to Jesus. He's the one, the messenger, the prophet that's set ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for the Lord. And when he comes, he comes proclaiming an astonishing message with heaps of expectations about what Jesus will be about. So so his first sermon, his evangelistic outreach event, begins by saying, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? That's what he expects, a coming wrath. Down a few verses later in verse 9, he says, The axe has been laid to the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's expecting that there's going to be this great judgment to come, axe-wielding and fire. When the people look to John, they start to wonder, I wonder if he's the Messiah. And in verse 16 of chapter 3 in Luke's gospel, John answers them all. He says, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's what you're to expect. When Jesus comes, he's going to come in judgment. The winnowing fork, the axe, the threshing. So John the Baptist, there he is in prison. He's got some expectations about Jesus. And remember also that John the Baptist has, um, has got a ministry that's calling out people about sin and the need to repent and to, to be washed and cleansed. He, he has no fear of even calling out sin for those in positions of power. And so he does that to Herod. And you read in verse 19 of chapter 3, when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and of all the other evil things that he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. And there John is, in prison. His ministry has been confined while Jesus has been unleashed And John hears word of this unleashed ministry and he's waiting to hear the news and now it comes back to him. And whilst it might fill us with joy to hear Jesus being able to heal even the Gentile and even raise the dead, it doesn't fill John with the sense of joy that we might have expected. And so John dispatches two of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. 
And in the section that follows from verse 18 to 35, there's actually three questions that get asked. And they help us answer that question about whether or not it's worth trust, trusting in Jesus, if he really is the one. In fact, that is question one that comes. It comes twice. You notice John dispatches in verse 19, you were to ask the Lord, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So when they come to Jesus, they say, look, John the Baptist sent us to ask. It's not actually our question. John's asking this. He's your cousin and he's wondering, he's in prison. He's wondering, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, incredibly, Jesus listens to the question, doesn't rebuke them. In fact, he doesn't answer them directly at all. He actually goes about an object lesson. You notice that in verse 21, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases and illnesses and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So there it is. Look at this. This is what's happening. You're seeing these things. What do you make of that? Then he answers the question indirectly, and he says in verse 22 to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. What have you seen? That the blind have received sight and the lame walk and those who have leprosy are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. That's what you've seen. Go and report that to John. These incredible acts of mercy. And John might well be thinking, well, where's the judgment? Where's the acts, Jesus? You're coming in your wrath, are you not? But notice there's actually something else that Jesus says. Go back and tell them what you've heard. Notice in the end of verse 22, tell John also that the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And it's that little phrase on the end there that's so critical because it picks up on what Jesus has said already in Luke chapter 4. Remember, he's in the synagogue in Luke 4. He takes the scroll from Isaiah and he reads it and he applies it to himself. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. John's in prison. He's the captive that wants to be set free. But Jesus is saying, listen, this is what is happening. Good news is being proclaimed right now to the poor. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the the epoch, the time of the Lord's favor. Look at these acts of mercy. And the proclamation that judgment can be averted. That this is good news for those who are poor. Now, not materially poor, spiritually bankrupt. Those that are under the sentence of death, that have a a debt that they cannot pay before God. And, And you know it's not just the materially poor, because the centurion in the first part of this chapter, he's a wealthy guy, but he needs to receive mercy as much as anyone. And Jesus is saying, here it comes, the proclamation. This is the time. This is what I'm about. Go and tell John that good news is being proclaimed to the poor. In fact, I move from place to place with the priority of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Because judgment will come, yes, but not now. John, hold fast. Don't wobble. Don't give up the faith, John. Go and tell him what you see and what you hear. And notice in verse 23, he adds on a little beatitude. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John, don't look at me and start to wobble. Hold fast. Know who I am. The one that you prophesied about. You were right to prepare the way for the Lord. 
Do not stumble on account of me. As you see the things that I am doing, do not lose heart. As it doesn't fit together with your reality and your expectation, hold fast. And I think there's application there for, well, for you and for me, isn't there? I mean, are, are, are there not times when you're tempted to stumble on account of Jesus? And not only because there is that mismatch, mismatch between our expectations and yeah, what Jesus is about, but also because sometimes it's, it's a little uncomfortable or it's a lot uncomfortable. It's a little unpopular or a lot unpopular to be about Jesus. And Jesus is saying, hold on. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Well, those messengers go and they've had their question answered. And Jesus really has said, you want to know what I'm like? This is what I'm like. And this is what I'm about. And hold fast. In, in the next section that comes, you get another question because Jesus now turns to the crowd and he addresses the crowd. And he says to them, listen, do you want to know what John's like? I think that's the best way to summarize this in the next section. So Jesus begins to speak to the crowd and he says, when you went down into the wilderness, all the crowds, the thousands and thousands, of why did you go? What did you go out to see? Did you think that the message that John was bringing was what? Did you go out just to look at the reeds that were kind of flopping backwards and forwards? Or is that what you were hoping John to be like? Someone who was kind of a bit limp and a bit kind of just, you know, this way, that way. And did he disappoint you? Because he wasn't like that. In fact, when you went to John, wasn't the case that you found someone who was robust and had authority and who spoke with uh, you know, great power? What did you go out to see? Not a reed? Oh, did you go down there and you were expecting someone in great fine clothes? Well, John would have disappointed again, wouldn't he? I mean, there he was. He was dressed up in camel's fur. If you wanted to look for someone who was dressed up all fancy, you would have gone to the palace because that's where they are. Well, what did you go out to see? Did you think you were packing up and hoping to look at the reeds and fancy dressed people? What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? And Jesus says, bang on. That's what you did. You went to go and see a prophet, the one who was standing and saying, thus says the Lord. And you were enthralled by that. And I tell you, not just a prophet, more than a prophet, because he was a prophet who was prophesied about. And then Jesus goes on and quotes Malachi. He is indeed the one who was the messenger sent ahead of the Messiah who's preparing a way. And now Jesus brings this incredible statement of affirmation. He says, listen, you go back and think of all of the prophets. I tell you this, among all those born of women, there is no one greater than John. So Jesus is one whose birth is uh, unique, this conception that is of a virgin and different. He's saying of all others, John, the greatest ever born, given the greatest responsibility to prepare and herald the coming of the Messiah. No one greater than him. And then immediately he flips it, doesn't he? Yet, he says, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And immediately you hear that and you think, hang on, how do you, how do you hold those things together? And what it's actually wanting you to realize is that John comes and he belongs in that line of Old Testament prophets. He's written about in the New Testament, of course, but he's on that Malachi and the rest side of things. And he is, like all the others, waiting in faith for the prospect of Jesus's victory that would avert judgment and bring salvation to the world. He's under the old covenant and he's awaiting and longing for the new covenant, longing to see those things. It's not that he's 
least in his, uh, his status, but in his understanding. See, he has this preparing ministry and he's pointing people forward to Jesus. But those who live this side of the cross and this side of Jesus' resurrection and his ascendance and this side of Jesus pouring out his Holy Spirit, well, they are greater. Not in significance, but greater in understanding. A greater assurance because they see the death and the resurrection. They have the outpoured spirit and they have a greater guarantee and a greater confidence. And so Jesus will affirm John and say, you want to know what he's like? Great. But there's something greater too, more important than John. And that's entry into the kingdom. Don't lose sight of that. Don't wobble on that. And then Jesus will now move and ask a third question. And it comes in verse 31. He then looks and considers the crowd and he says, what shall I talk about and say about this generation? To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? What, what are you like? What are, what are they like? As they... And he says, I'll tell you what you're like. You're like kids. You're like children sitting in a marketplace calling out to each other. You live your life. You go and see John. You come and see Jesus. And what? You, you're just like children, really. You, you say, we played the pipe for you, but you did not dance. Uh, we wanted to be all merry and happy. And look, John was all sober and down and austere. And, and then we, 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 we wanted to sing a dirge, but you, you wouldn't cry. You, you didn't do the things we wanted to do. We wanted to play funerals and you were all happy and about the place. And then John go, Jesus goes on to clarify. Notice in verse 33, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. Right? You wanted to be all happy, but you're going to ditch him. And you say, look, he was so joyless and austere and is such an aesthetic, not interested. But then on the flip side of that, Jesus comes eating and drinking. And you say, glutton, friend of sinners, drunkard. Don't want anything to do with him. He's so reckless. And Jesus is saying, both of us have come doing the very thing that God has commissioned us to do. John as the prophet preparing the way for the Lord. Hold fast, John to the teachings that you brought and Jesus coming with the power of the kingdom and all of the glory of God and will be the one who will die in the place of sinners that we might avert the wrath that is to come. And Jesus then goes to say, will you be wise? Because wisdom is proved right by her children. Wisdom is going to give birth and it will give birth to those people who see John for who he is and Jesus for who he is. And they'll be able to discern and hold fast, recognizing that Christ is the king of the kingdom who reigns and rules. And even though John's expectations don't marry up, Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Hold fast, John, even though you're in prison, even though shortly he will lose his head. The kingdom is secure and the king has arrived and the king will go to a cross and die and reign on the other side of death for all time. Hold fast to him who conquers all. But then Jesus looks at the crowd. He says, but you're like kids. You're just like little children. And you think you write the rules and you come up with all of the excuses. There's just no pleasing you. But Jesus is saying this is no gain. Your salvation 
Your very life is at stake. And so all of this leaves us with a question. Are you wise in your understanding of Jesus? Or are you doubting? Are you struggling because Jesus hasn't lived up to expectations? This is a call back. If it's true for John, of all people, it's true for us to hold fast, to not wobble and stumble, to not chuck it in, but to hold fast. And maybe in the absence of uh, being connected and together with one another, we need to hear this more than ever. You know, we're sitting there thinking, I wonder, you know, is Jesus really it or should we expect someone else? Expect no one else. The Messiah has come. He has lived. He has demonstrated his power, his capacity for grace and for mercy. And he's died in your place. So that whatever we face, we have joy. We have life. We have the one who is the king who reigns over all things. So, I will sing into the night. Christ is risen and on high. Greater is he living in me than in the world. No surrender, no retreat. We are free and we are redeemed. We will declare over despair, you are the hope. We're going to sing in a moment's time. And my prayer is that we can sing this with great gusto today. For we are more than conquerors through Christ. For you, Christ, have overcome this world and this life. And we give him thanks and praise. And so hold fast. Answer to the question we began. Is Jesus worth trusting? Is he worth giving your life for? Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you renew our faith or give us faith if we've never trusted and never believed before, Lord, pour out your spirit into our lives. We know you to be the king above all kings. And Lord, where our expectations don't meet with the reality we find around us, draw our eyes to the cross, to the empty tomb, to the resurrected Lord, the one who ascended and reigns and rules over all things, our Heavenly Father. We give you thanks and praise, for Christ is risen. You are risen indeed. Amen.